Well, good morning. Hopefully you greeted one another already and said hello to some people, and uh, I believe the youth services today, I haven't seen Pastor Stephen, he's around here somewhere. Um, I don't know if you can wave at me back there in the darkness, so I know he's here. There he is. Hey, Stephen. We have youth service today, right? It's the last Sunday. Yeah, see, I remembered. You didn't even remember to tell me. All right, all y'all, get back there. Well, yeah, I don't need that. All right, there he is, back there in the back. If you're a uh, sixth grade to senior, go and get that young man right there and go have your service downstairs. So so another thing, if I don't forget, uh, there's a lot of things happening, and it's this is an amazing time of year as we in the church celebrate this, this incredible gift of God's love and redemption in what we celebrate as Easter. As we come into this season, there's a lot happening in the church and around us, and so I want to let you know that after the service today, we're going to need these chairs stacked like this center section and that one. Not that one. We'll leave that up. Just this section and that section over here, these two. So these three total, stack those up. We have a lunch and learn thing afterwards about volunteering in the church, being a part of God's uh, work here. We want you to be part of the community of what God's doing inside the church, but we also want you to be a community outside the church as well. So come and find out about that right after the service today. Also, uh, we didn't put it in the announcements because I knew a lot of y'all would take it wrong if we put it in the little bulletin. And I didn't want anybody publicizing that the church is having a weed party because we're having a weed party tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. But it's with hula hose and rakes, okay? So don't get any crazy ideas. <laughs> you, are, you are invited. All right. <laughs> I'll give you one of those cards free right now, okay? All right, so come and join us tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, and we're going to be out here cleaning up the property because, as you know, God's blessed us with a bunch of rain and snow this winter, and it's uh, promoted itself in weeds, and those things are everywhere. So if you want to come and help us, that'd be great. You can take them with if you want. I don't care. We just want you to come and join us and help us out if you would, please. So that's all. You know the other stuff that's happening. Oh, shirts, full throttle shirts that you ordered a while ago, they should be ready within the next uh, week and a half. Uh, hopefully before then, but I'm just giving you a long-range uh, shout-out. And then we have new shirts that are being ordered for the church. It's uh, our Christian Faith Fellowship shirts that are available online through April 7th. Uh, you can order those, uh, button-up, ladies-style shirt and uh, baseball shirt, I think. So if you go online, you can check that out, and you can have those. Uh, you have to pay for them, but I mean, you can have them. You can order those. How's that? Enough of that. I think that's everything. Let's do the... Uh, Accountability questions for our week. Each week we ask you these because we're supposed to be living the life that God has called us to live as Christians, not just coming to church, but living a Christian life outside of church. Being here is great. We want you to be part of the church, but we want you to be representing Jesus out there, not just in here. And to do that, we need to spend time in his word. So this past week, did you spend some time in God's word with him? Yes. Did you share God's story with someone this week? Did you spend some time alone with God this week with no agenda? Just be with Him because He's God. Yes. Do you know what the Holy Spirit is saying to you? Yes. Are you giving as God has asked you to give in time, talent, and resources? Not one of the three, all of the three. Time, talent, and resources. Are you doing that? Yes. Did you invite someone to church with you this week? Yes. We have some come and join us cards up here. We want you to share God's story with someone, let them know about Jesus, and then invite them to come to the place where God has led you to grow in their faith, to be discipled, to, to live life together as a community of believers. So that's why we want you to do that, okay? And now we've been praying and working on our goal for 2019. We want to fill, do exactly what Jesus said for the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations. So we're supposed to be reaching people with the gospel. We want you to reach someone by sharing the faith of Jesus Christ and walking with them in their journey in 2019. Are you doing that? Yes. Let's do it, church, all of us. We've been looking at the Spirit-led life. And what the Bible says about it. And uh, not just what we've learned or heard or we think, 
We need to know what the Bible talks about when it's saying the Spirit-led life because the church has misconstrued some things, wrongly taught some things about the Holy Spirit, uh, starting with Pentecost itself and what the point of the Holy Spirit is in my life and yours. And we need to know what God's Word says and what Jesus taught us, not what we think we know or what somebody told us it meant. We need to know what He's saying. And so we've been looking in the Scriptures about what it says. And as I asked you a few weeks ago, if you would read Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 in a full reading of context, because oftentimes when we read sections of Scripture, we can um, kind of get messed up theology because we'll grab something and then hold on to that and not hear it in its full context. So Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8 are addressing the same thing to us. And remember, the Word of God is written to us as believers. It's not written to sinners. It's written to believers. Sinners can read it. They can, but they're not going to get the same thing a believer gets out of it because the Spirit of God is revealing truth to us as we read it. That's why the world looks at it and thinks we're crazy, but when we see it, we see it as life. And so the Spirit of God is calling us to spend time in that Word in order that the Spirit of God might transform us. And so when the Apostle Paul is writing to the, to the church in, in Rome, in Romans chapter 8, he says, but you, but you, church, are not controlled by your sinful nature. We've read this scripture the last couple of weeks, and I want you to hear me again. You, church, are not controlled by your sinful nature. You used to be. You used to be, but you're not. The Word of God says you are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. There's a new person at the wheel. It's that old bumper sticker. People used to have, God's my co-pilot. Well, they're confessing right there. They're jacked up. All right. God's not supposed to be the co-pilot. He's supposed to be the pilot. Although I don't want your car, you know, going with nobody in the seat. But I'm saying in your life, God needs to be in complete control. And that's what he's telling us right here in the scriptures. And remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. So you either have it or you don't. You are or you aren't. And God's in control or you are. It's not both. It's not a negotiation. It's not a tug of war. Church, if you're a believer and the Spirit of God lives in you, then the Spirit of God is leading your life. It's the Word of God. I mean, you can argue with it if you want to. See how that works for you, and you can talk to God about it. All right, so I'm not here to promote a theology or a, a way of thinking of this church. We're here to look at what does God say to me about being led by the Spirit, and why is this so important? Because he tells us if we're not led, we're not a child of God, and I want to be a child of God. Amen. And that's important. It's like really important. So the Spirit-led life is for every believer. It's not just for apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists. It's for everybody. I said those fivefold offices because in Ephesians 4, it says Christ gave the church the gift of these offices to help them to equip them to become fully mature in Christ. But a lot of times what we can do when we see those uh, offices, so to speak, within the church, we think that they have more of the Spirit of God or they have the... No, listen, you have all of the Spirit of God that I do or anybody else does if you have the Spirit of God within you. The same power, the same presence, the same everything. Okay, that's God's word. So as I look at that, then we need to understand that the spirit-led life also teaches us that there are ebbs and flows in everything we deal with in this life. There's stuff that happens that is good, and there's stuff that happens that is bad. There's times where we have rest, and there's times we have unrest. There's times of turmoil and times of peace. What it means to us as we look in the scriptures, the spirit-led life is a consistent life. 
It's just consistent. I am Christ, and I am his. He is mine, and we are solid. Everything that's going on in my life around me does not affect who I am in Christ. Therefore, when you wake up with the flu like Adam today, it doesn't mean he's not saved because he feels like crap. doesn't mean he's like a sinner and he needs to repent. He's sick. See, the world stuff affects us, but it doesn't change who I am in Christ. So the spirit-led life is one that addresses who God is in my life and lives that way no matter what's happening. All right, so it is the only way to live for God in a sinful world is to live a spirit-led life. So we've been looking at the scriptures and the birth of the the church in Acts chapter 2, which is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. So the, the full redemption of God was not only Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, but the infilling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. See, all of it completed our earthly redemption. It, it didn't work without all three elements. It's the trifecta of God's redemption. It's death, resurrection, empowerment. And without any one of those elements, you and I are in trouble. But we need all of them. And when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and he filled the believers, the Spirit of God moved in them and, and people's lives were changed because people were out there living for Jesus, talking about Jesus, and changing people's lives through the power of Jesus. That's what was happening on the day of Pentecost and from that day forward throughout the book of Acts. At the conclusion of chapter 2, we read the verses a few weeks ago, It's like this amazing thing takes place. 3,000 people were saved, baptized into the church that day. And then it says that they continued in fellowship, house to house, eating dinners together, having the Lord's Supper, fellowshipping, and then coming back and gathering in the colonnade, uh, the temple courts of the colonnade, uh, Solomon's colonnade. So when I say all that to you, church, this is is the function of the church today. It should be the same way. We come together as one. We worship God together as the body. Then we go out. And as we go to our homes, we're sharing life together, all right? We're living with people, alongside of people, and we're sharing Jesus in their life. And as a result of that, people are coming to faith and finding Jesus or wanting to know about him. And then the following week, they're coming back with us because they want to live the life that we're living. That's the New Testament. That's the power of the Spirit in our life. That's the way the church is supposed to function. Come together, go out, live the life. Come together, go out, live the life. That's the, the function. Okay, so now we know that as we travel after chapter 2 and 3 and 4, there's some things happening. We went through all that. We're going to come to the end of chapter 4 for, for a reason, as God is teaching us something about the Spirit-led life. What we find here in the end of chapter 4 is something that is like almost a mirror of chapter 2 in just the opening sentences. And it talks about the unity of the believers and sharing their stuff, Right? So let's see what they're talking about. Why is it that we're revisiting the same context of a story that we already heard a little bit about in Acts 2, right here in Acts 4? All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them Bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned, and he brought the money to the apostles. 
okay, this seems like a little bit of an odd story in the middle of this, and it sounds a little bit cultish uh, in our modern culture, and it's because many cults have been born out of misconstruing God's word, false teachers of Christ, false apostles, which we are warned about, and we see in the scriptures that the devil himself masquerades as an angel of light. So false Christ, false teachings, and you've seen those people, and you've seen them on the news, read about them in history, where people will sell their houses, come together in this community, they all share everything, the top person's the rich one, you know how it goes in that false setting right there, that's not what is going on here at all, and this is how we can get ourselves messed up, and why in the world, in the middle of this God movement in Jerusalem, throughout the church and the world as redemption is being born are we given this glimpse into something that's taking place in this type of a social setting there is a reason that is here and we need to find out why because i want to clarify a few things before we step into it what happened in the church was not required by god god didn't say go sell your homes and give your money to the church god didn't say that neither did the church say that neither did the apostles say that just to clarify, this was not something they said, go sell your stuff and give us the money so we can make everybody okay. Uh, Christian socialism, that's not what was happening here. What we see here in the word of God and what it says is that those that had stuff felt, they felt, they sensed a need around them. And because they had means to do something about it, they sold their assets, some of their assets, to meet the needs of others that didn't have their basic needs met. And so what they were doing is they had assets in this world. They had means, properties, and some money. And they saw that there were people that could use that in other ways. And so they sold off some of their investments to invest back into the kingdom of God. That's what was taking place here. And it was purely by their decision. No mandate of people. No mandate of the church. It doesn't even say God told them to. It says they just felt they needed to. It was just something they wanted to do. Okay, now, I want to I wanna make that point because it's critical about what the Spirit of God wants to teach us through this context of this story. Because at the end of that statement, they give us an example of what was going on in Barnabas, son of encouragement. And it says he sold a field he owned. So that tells you right there, it wasn't where he lived. It wasn't his house. He sold a field. He had an asset. And he sold it and he gave the money back because he wanted to meet people's needs. All right. So it's important that we see that because the glimpse that we get into the context of Joseph, who was called Barnabas, son of encouragement, what we're getting is a picture of his heart. Here's a guy that had compassion on people, so much so that that became his nickname. That's who he is. Okay, so he was that. So there's a reason why we're looking at that. Because, see, when we read the Bible, a lot of times we'll stop reading chapter 4 and tomorrow we'll read chapter 5. But we do the disservice to what we're being taught. Because the reason why we see the community of God acting like this and an example of Barnabas is because of what's going to take place in chapter 5. The very first verse of chapter 5 says, but. So it's a contrast. This is what was happening here. This is who this guy is. We see his heart and what he was doing. But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. So now we're going to get a flip side view. 
of what was happening in the church. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. Do you see this? No mandate was given. It's totally his choice. You give as you want to give, church. I'm just emphasizing that right now. It's your choice. But you will answer to someone as a result of it. You will. And so he's saying this to him. He's like, look, the property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. And everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, took him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. I just want you to notice something here. that church didn't start because the dude croaked. I mean, is that crazy? Seriously. It's like he's laying there in front of the altar or whatever. I'm just saying. He's right there. Uh, you guys, can you get him out of here? And uh, three hours later, they're still having church. All right. Anyway, so about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Not sure where she was. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received from your land? Yes, she replied. That was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Church, um, not really like one of those encouraging sections of scripture where everybody's like, woo I can't wait. God talked to me, you know, and maybe you're rethinking your offering today. I don't know, but uh, I, I want... I want <laughs> the whole point of this is not about money. It's not about possessions. It's about your heart. And this yeah. is what God is always about. You see, what, what we see here is a contrasting thing about the Spirit of God and what was happening in the church and the function of people. We have the example of Barnabas, whose heart was all about encouraging others and meeting needs. And then we have a contrast when we look at Ananias and Sapphira, and we see them all about themselves. See, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and that just blows my mind, that we think we can lie to God, or we can deceive Him, or we can hide from Him anything about what's going on in our life. And, and the reason they did it is they wanted people in the public to give them praise. They wanted recognition. They wanted acceptance. So they were willing to lie to get people to think they were godly. Think about it. It's crazy. I mean, it, it really is crazy. Especially when you see what the Spirit of God was doing and what was going on. And then the fact that they would be willing to lie to be accepted by the church, to be recognized by the church, to get praise from people in the church for people to pat them on. Maybe they were hoping for a nickname. I don't know. I mean, think about it. Like, what in the world is going on here? Church, the Holy Spirit, God knows everything there is nothing hidden from his eyes nothing he knows you there is nothing that he does not know about you 
see, when we look at this section of Scripture, what we need to learn is our absolute necessity of surrendered obedience to the Holy Spirit in my life. That's what I need. What would ever give us the idea that we can hide things from God? What would give us that idea? Who is it we're hiding from in the first place? And why would we worry more about what people think of us than what God knows about us? I mean, think about it. Church, it's crazy how we can somehow, some way, manipulate ourselves to think that we're okay and not seen. Spirit of God knows all things. The Word of God continuously tells us that God sees us as we are. He knows our thoughts, the intentions of our hearts, that our life is transparent before Him. And so, Jesus, again, speaking of money, it's funny how the money subject is, is, a, is a tender thing to talk about in churches and people's lives and all that stuff, but when you look at what Jesus does when he talks about money, he always is going after the heart of people every time. And so in Luke 21, when Jesus is there with the disciples, this is what we read. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Right up there, you know, just dropping it in. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she poor as she is, has given everything she has. You know what's crazy is through the years of ministry and dealing with, I don't know what anybody gives here. I have no idea what you give. We get a financial report at our monthly board meetings and I know the numbers, but I don't know where they come from. I mean, I know they come from y'all and myself and my wife, but I don't know anything other than what my wife and I give. And I tell you that on purpose because see, I've watched through the years some churches that people that gave thought they had ownership based on the church can't make it without me. Very unhealthy stuff, you know. And as we look at what Jesus is talking to his disciples about, he's saying, look what he said, she's given more. Why would he say she's given more? Because she was giving from a heart for the kingdom of God and for the fullness of what God was trying to do, and the others were just kind of given their pocket change. And that's why when the apostle wrote to the church, he said, God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give it begrudgingly. Don't just do it because you owe it. That's like, that's garbage. You give it to God with a cheerful heart because it's for his glory, for his purpose, and for his kingdom. Now, this isn't even about money. This is about where our heart is. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach them. He's saying, look, it's, it's about the heart of the individual in the eyes of God. And the way God sees us is in our heart. Not just in our activities, but in our heart. And he knows us. And he knows why we do what we do. Living the Christian life is not about impressing people. Living the Christian life is not about impressing God. You can't. Living the Christian life is the spirit-led life is one living in obedience to the glory of God. And so here we are in Luke 16. We look at another section of scriptures and Jesus again is talking about money. By the way, he talked more about money than any other subject, by the way. Jesus did. The Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all of this and scoffed at him. Then he said to them, you like to appear righteous in public, 
But God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. That's a pretty powerful statement, you know. It's one that we should pause and reflect upon and contemplate that as we consider the Pharisees being the teachers in God's house, the teachers of God's law, the ones who had the word of God in the scrolls that were to teach people how to live for God. I'm talking about the legitimate God we're talking about. And Jesus calls them out and says, you know, you like people to think you're something, but God knows you're not. You're putting on this false front as if you're holy. But God knows you, and he knows all about you. You know what I love about Jesus is he doesn't mess around, man. He's going right for it. And, and one of the things that he can't stand is a self-righteous individual. And so he goes right after these guys, and he tells them this is not okay, and it's not acceptable, and he's going right after their hearts. And that statement, what this world honors, is detestable in the sight of God. So the Christian life is not measured in the same context as the world with importance, with celebrity status, with success, with finances, with numbers. That's the way the world views things. And Jesus said that God detests the way the world views things. And so let me just give you a little mirror, church, to look at ourselves in the church. It's crazy that the, the, the church is still like uh, we're still measuring things by the world's standards instead of God's. We do. And, um, and the, the example would be the, the books that are sold in the Christian community, you know, are from the pastors of very large churches. And we, I'm not saying their books are bad. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm trying to get us an understanding of what God's teaching us and what we see. We see like those books that are from the large pastor churches and we in the Christian community and other pastors as well are right there buying the books to learn so that we can become something we're not yet. Because what we want to do is we want to succeed like they have. And so we have this projection of understanding of even to be accomplishing God's work requires us to have a certain status of success or numbers, or whatever you want to say. And so as I reflected upon that and thinking about it, um, <laughs> it's happening all the time. I mean, we're part of a community of believers, of churches. There's like 60-some churches that belong to the group of us. And, um, and there's people I don't even know that pastor churches in that community because, well, I, I want to say this right. <laughs> all right. Um, they don't appear to have done much. How's that the way of saying it? Is that okay? You understand what I mean? Like their churches are kind of small and insignificant. And so nobody talks about them. Nobody asks them to come up and share their story with the other churches and pastors. Nobody would buy their book if they wrote one. Because what would you have behind that book to tell me that you're successful? And so as I look at that, and I'm like, Lord, you know, we have so messed up the church that we still are measuring things the way you say are detestable in your sight not that growth and success and all that isn't a good thing from God because he talks about the numbers in the book of Acts but what I'm trying to see and what God's saying to us is about how we get our self-worth out of the world's standards like I am what I do 
instead of I am who I am. I am what I have instead of I am who I am. I am where I work, not who I am. See, we, we have those things. And it's crazy. Let me, let me tell you a little story about what happened to me one time not long ago. I was invited by that group of churches. We, I have a pastor that oversees. He's like a bishop. Uh, we call him a superintendent. Invited me to come to this meeting in Sacramento, California for a group of churches that were about the same amount of people in worship service they were going to do a teaching, right? So I was like, sure, I'd love to come. You know, I want to grow and, and learn and whatever. So they fly me out there. They paid the way. It was great. I don't know how many years ago. It might have been like eight, nine years ago. Fly out there. And he had asked this couple to pick me up at the church. I mean, at the airport to bring me to the church. So we'd never met before, you know, this couple that's picking me up. And so they have a sign, you know, I'm like, hey, that's me, you know, come and get, you know, go get them. And I'm like, these people are like really attentive to me and they're making me really uncomfortable, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, they're like, um, I mean, it was just kind of weird, you know, and I'm like, what is going on with these people? You know, they're like in my face and asking me questions and, and I'm like, you know, I'm friendly and I want to get to know people, but you guys are like in my comfort zone and you need to back off, you know? <laughs> We get in the car, and we're driving away from the airport, and they're freaking me out. There was three of them. And they're freaking me out because the driver, literally, I'm not joking, would be turned around talking to me. And this is in California, remember, right? And I'm like, really, i like, what is going on? Because they're wanting to know, like, everything that's going on here. And, and finally, through the conversation, they realize I'm there to attend. They thought I was the speaker. They thought I was coming to teach, and they were so excited that they were asked to pick up the teacher, and then they found out I was a nobody. <laughs> Literally, I'm not joking, the guy in the back seat with me, who was a pastor, by the way, he said, oh, you're a nobody like me. That's exactly what he said to me when he realized I wasn't going there to teach anything. And it, it's okay. I still laugh at it today. I think it's hilarious. I was like, wow, man, you are jacked up, you know? <laughs> Anyway, no, I mean, we all are, but I mean, it was just funny, but I'm telling you that because as we did that, then the two people in the front seat never said another word to me, <laughs> never. Now, I don't know if they were embarrassed, which they should have been, or if they just were like, oh, he's nobody. I don't care what he has to say or who he is. And when we drove to the place and I got out of the car, I thanked them for the ride. They never said a word, went and parked, never spoke to me the whole event or when I left. I'm telling you that because, church, think about it, how we treat people based on how we perceive them. This is in the church. I mean, they're Christian people. I'm not saying they're not Christian people. I'm just trying to say something and make a point. I'm like, that was like, that was like the weirdest thing that's happened to me in that context of that kind of a thing. And it's like, that is nuts. Even if I was the teacher, who cares? <laughs> who cares? What does that mean? I mean, you gave me a ride. <laughs> you want? I'll sign your dashboard. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> people. I mean, think about what we do, though. Do you, I mean, I want you to perceive what Jesus is saying. He's like, you guys measure things differently than God does. Why? Let's let's see what Jesus is fully teaching here to us in the church. You, you remember if you were reading the Gospels, 
that the disciples uh, had a lot of conversations about who was going to be the greatest. Like, who's going to have the right hand of Jesus? Who's going to be the commander-in-chief right under him? And that happened several times. And one of these times that happens in Mark 9, and I want to read these scriptures to you because it's pretty amazing, and I believe it has a powerful truth for you and I. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. Okay. So here's the disciples who have been with Jesus, believe he's the Son of God, the Savior. They've watched him do amazing things. And yet they're having a conversation that he's not a part of and they think he doesn't know what's going on. And in their conversation, they know they're wrong because when he asks about it, they don't even want to talk about it. Right? So they already know the very conversation they were engaging in was wrong. They didn't want to address it in front of him, and he's calling them out on it. How in the world, come on, church, how do we think that we can disconnect from God and have conversations life experiences, engage in sin, and somehow God doesn't know. We have this crazy ability within ourselves to think that we can step over into the sinful nature, away from the Spirit of God, and indulge ourselves in any type of sin, gossip, shame, whatever you want to call it, and then step over and be like, what? That's what's happening right here. But they didn't answer because they'd been arguing about which of them was greatest. He sat down and called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. So Jesus is like, man, you guys are so jacked up. Remember he said, God doesn't do things the way the world does. God's all about the nobodies. He's all about the servants. That's what he's all about. See, the evidence of the spirit-led life is that of the servant heart of Christ. It's that servant-heartedness. That's what he's after. That's what shows who he is. Remember Barnabas, son of encouragement. He did this so that he could bless and meet the need of others. Ananias and Sapphira, they did it so that people would see who they were. It's not about God. It's about me. And we look at this, and Jesus is telling us something really powerful. Here you go in Hebrews chapter 4. Church, for the word of God is alive and powerful. Why do you think I'm asking you every week, are you spending time in God's word? The word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Yeah, doesn't matter what the church thinks of you. Doesn't matter what anyone thinks of you. God knows you. And what he's telling us here in the scripture, God's word speaking to us is saying, you need to expose yourself to the truth of the word of God so that the word of God can expose who you are to you. So that God can transform you so that we might live the spirit-led life God's called us to live the exposition of my heart to me for God sees me as I am. 
Is there something in your life that you're trying to hide from God? Anything? <laughs> Does God have your time, talents, and resources? Does he? Um, as, that's not against anyone that said yes. I'm, I'm going to emphasize something about that. It's one thing to say yes in church and say, you know, I did that, I've done that, I'm doing this, this, and this, and check our boxes, but like, let's go back to Ananias and Sapphira. Are you all in? Are you trying to present or project something that's not all true? Yeah, I look at that, I'm like, God, please help me. See, as we expose ourselves to the truth of the word of God, he says our heart is exposed, we're uncomfortable. Like, when you hear a message like this, I get it, man. It's not like a pep talk. Woo, this is amazing. I feel so good. I, I know, but it's God's truth, and sometimes we have to be uncomfortable, and sometimes it needs to feel like a knife being turned in my stomach or my heart as God's exposing myself and saying, you know, I've been trying to talk to you about this, and you've been acting like it's not there. But I know. You see, God's been there on every website you visited. God's been there in every single social media thing that you have. It doesn't matter if you have secret stuff from everybody else. God knows who you are. You know, it's like nothing's hidden. He knows all about you. Thank you, God. See, there's no secret rooms, secret identities, secret sins. The Word of God says we're completely naked and transparent before Him. And so this is why Jesus taught us what the Holy Spirit would do. When he said to us in John 16, when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and the coming judgment. He's saying the Holy Spirit's going to be there to grab a hold of your heart and say, I don't think so. Not there. Not that. In church, what happens a lot of times is we, we ignore the Holy Spirit's voice. We callous over and we get ourselves in some bad places. In Luke 8, Jesus again teaching says, no one lights a lamp and then covers it with a bowl or hides it under a bed. A lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open and everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. So pay attention how you hear. Isn't that a crazy statement right there? So pay attention how you hear. He was just talking about your life. And he's saying there's nothing going to be hidden. Everything's going to be come out, and it's going to be seen by everyone. Don't think you're hiding anything. It's going to be seen. And then he says, so pay attention to how you hear. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. Oh, the valuable truth that God brings into my heart. And I hear him. And then by hearing him and, and acknowledging and surrendering and obeying, I learn more. But he goes on and says this, but for those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken from them. Hmm. So it says, when I live in obedience, that obedience to the Spirit, I learn more and more about this walk. But when I step into disobedience and I don't do it, even what I've already known or think I know, I'm going to lose that. So I've seen it happen. Unfortunately, as a pastor, I've mentored other pastors and had accountability relationships with pastors. And you all know um, pastors that have failed sexually, morally, financially, whatever. They've entered into a sinful life, having once been 
men or women of God leading churches and ministries. And I've had some personal friends that have failed in those areas. And a few of them I was working with to keep them in line with God and integrity. I just want you to know your accountability only works as good as you want it to. Uh, you can tell me anything you want, but if you're not accountable to God and realize that your life is transparent before him, there's nothing I or anyone else can do to keep you from your choices. And as I looked at these people, and the very first one that I had an encounter with uh, was a friend of mine in a neighboring church. We did ministry together, and our churches had baptism celebrations together, and we did services together at times, and worship nights and things. And so the interesting thing was is that the church was growing. People were getting saved and baptized. And this church was actually growing faster than mine. Not that we were comparing, just hear me through. Oh, wow, he was having an affair with a woman in his church. So, of course, just like God's word says, it, nothing's going to be kept in secret. It's going to come to light. And it did. And when it came to the light, I was like troubled. I was just broken. And I was angry at him, angry at the situation. And then I was angry at God. Like, God, how is it that this guy was living like that, preaching, and people are getting saved, baptized, and now the impact on them is crazy because he was not living true. And so as I stepped back from that situation, prayed, and as I learned through that, here's what I learned. It's very similar to the conversation the disciples had. That that individual had begun to see what God was doing in the church as something through him and justified his own spiritual condition there so that it balanced out what he was doing over here. And I read that in the scripture when it says, pay attention to how you hear. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken from them. And in the context of crossing the line into the sinful nature, he lost his understanding of what it meant to live the godly life, not just preach it. And people were being saved because of who God is, not who the pastor was. And so it had nothing to do with him, even though he was trying to own what God was doing. Oh, like Ananias and Sapphira. And instead, God was saying, like Dave, it has nothing to do with him. I know him. My truth is my truth, and it will transform lives. But I'll take care of him. And he did. And it's happened over and over again. That's why I daily pray for my integrity, my relationship with my wife, and where God has me. I don't want to fall to that stuff in church. We need to be on our guard always because the enemy wants you and I to screw it up because we are the light of Jesus Christ and he wants us to compromise, indulge in gossip. He wants us to look at one website. He wants us to just, just like compromise in one little area where it's not that big a deal. Just do this. And the spirit of God is calling us to live the light of a spirit-led life of righteousness. So pay attention to how you hear. Be obedient to the Holy Spirit when he speaks. Say yes. Know that it's his voice. Surrender to him. Engage him fully in who he is. We cannot pass by what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, church. We cannot ignore sections of our lives. We can't act like there's inaccessible places with God or things that are hidden. He knows. Can't live a lie. 
God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows the intentions of our hearts. So early in my Christian life, measuring things by the way the world measures them, looking at things like the world does, I started pastoring a little tiny church in Inkster, Michigan. Um, it's a church I grew up in. Sunday mornings, uh, literally when we started, there would be 25 people in church on Sunday morning for worship. And then we had a Sunday night service. 12 to 18 might show up. 20 would be a great night if that happened, but it's normally 12 to 15 probably. Wednesday night prayer meeting, there would be few. There were times on either Sunday night or Wednesday night that I would have four people in the congregation besides my wife and kids. And um, I was working a, a job in a secular world. I was what they call bivocational in ministry. I was pastoring a church while I worked a secular job, and I was going to school for pastoral ministries. And so I was not getting a lot of sleep, and I was praying to get my messages, preaching three messages a, a week, morning, night, and Wednesday. None of them ha could be the same, you know. I'm talking to the same people, whoever show up, showed up. And uh, I would walk home to the parsonage, which was the church's house at that time, about a block away by myself, literally for months, just crying all the way home. Just like, God, why? What in the world? Why am I even doing this? And you know, it's like on Sunday morning when there was 25 people there, they, they acted like they were attending a funeral and they looked like they were and they didn't respond to anything. Uh, I won't say anything. There was probably an occasional amen. Probably at the end of the prayer, at least, everybody said amen. Uh, but I mean, it was dead there, okay? Do you understand? And I was like sobbing my eyes out to God, like, what do I need to do differently and stuff? And I, I was kind of angry. Because I was like, you know, I'm, I, I'm trying to work, be a dad, learn to be a pastor, and be a pastor, and I'm studying, and like four people show up, and I've been, you know, wanting to hear from God and write a message out, and then four people. And I struggled for a long time, for months, complaining to God about it, talking to him, asking him, like, what do I need to do to change? What do you want me to say differently? I was doing some very serious and open, transparent heart searching with God. And I'm sharing this for a reason, church, because as I walked that journey with God, he began to teach me through his word. That's why you have to expose yourself to scripture. God taught me this incredible lesson that I have never forgotten and I never will, and it transformed who I am. Dave, <clears throat> look at Jonah. Jonah, the reluctant prophet, you know the story. He didn't want to preach to the Assyrians. He didn't like them. He wanted God to judge them. He wanted them to be destroyed. They were the enemy of Israel. And he didn't want to preach to them. He just wanted God to judge them. God said, go tell them I'm going to judge them in 40 days. I will destroy them if they don't repent. And Jonah was like, great, do it. I'm out. <laughs> That's what he did. Like, kill him, man. And you know the story. Whale, swallowed, big fish, whatever, puked on shore. Finally goes and does it. <laughs> preaches the message. Goes in there and tells them God's, you know, I'm, I'm sure it was an enthusiastic message, you know, because he didn't want them to repent in the first place. So he's probably just saying, hey, God's going to judge you. 40 days, you're done. You know, going through, and he does his thing, goes up on the hill, sits down to watch it happen, and he's just waiting. Yay, God, I want to see the fire fall, crush these people. And they repent. From the king to the slave, it says, in the whole place, they repented. 
king put on sackcloth and ashes and sat before God and they repented and the entire city had a revival and they repented of their pagan living and they changed and they said we will serve God and we hear you God and we ask you to forgive us and God did and Jonah was so ticked off he was like that's why I didn't want to do it It's true, man. You've read his book. He's like, I knew you were God of mercy. I knew you'd forgive him. I didn't want to tell them. And that's how the book ends. Jonah mad at God because they repented. It's one of the greatest revival stories of the Old Testament. It is. Where a pagan country transformed and said yes to God. It's amazing. And so as God shows me this and he's like, look at that, man. I'm like, yeah, that's crazy stuff. And then look at Nahum. If you've read through the Bible in a year, you know, you've read Nahum. It's one of the minor prophets, but nobody knows him and nobody preaches about him or talks about him. And yet Nahum was a prophet that was sent to the same city in the same country years later to bring a message of God's judgment. Nobody repented. Nobody changed. And Assyria was destroyed. So we're not talking about Nahum. (laughs) And here's the thing. Church, check it out. Like, on one hand, we have national revival, and over here, not one convert, one baptism candidate, and an absolute destruction. And God said, Dave, who is the guy that I will honor? Oh, man, my heart was like struck inside. This is when I was complaining about the four. I said, Dave, who is greatest in my eyes as I look upon them? Nahum, who never complained, just did what I asked, had zero converts, zero anything, and nobody even talks about him. And if we transport that whole scenario into today's modern church in America, everybody be buying Jonah's book. Everybody. Everybody. Come on, we even put his story in our nurseries. No nursery has the story of Nahum in it. They wouldn't want to freak the kids out. Like, yeah, God's going to come and destroy everything. And, you know, it's uh, Jonah and the fish and all that. Okay, think about it. So today we'd be flying Jonah across the country like when I got picked up at the airport. Come and talk to our church about how we can see our city transform. Teach us what it means to see national revival. That's what we would do. And really, he'd have nothing to teach us. And at district assembly, when we all gather in our little group of churches, no one asks the pastor of the church of 50, who's working a bivocational job, who every week is faithful, he's living right, sharing Jesus with people, and he has a little tiny church over there, and they are not really doing anything. Nobody's asking him to come up and tell his story to anyone else. And so as I was contemplating all these things as I'm talking to God, and I'm telling you this was a process of a long time, God challenged me and convicted me until I realized that it wasn't about the 25 or the 4. God said, Dave, if there was going to be a 1,000 people in church this morning, would you have prayed different, studied different, would your message be different, and would you deliver it different than if there's 4? And it would have been. I'm embarrassed to tell you. My preparation would have been a lot better. My prayers would have been a lot more sincere. My desire to know exactly what God wanted me to say would have been 
much more sought after because me as a man was saying if I were to speak to a thousand people I would want to make sure that everything I did was exactly right really so you don't want to do that for the four And so it's like God was like, Dave, from now on, you better preach the four as if they were a thousand because you're doing it for me. And if you ever preach to a thousand, make sure you do it like you're doing it to four because it's about me. Amen. Yeah. No. I'm telling you because it's an embarrassing part of my life that I had to confess before God and that I realized through those months of anxieties and praying and looking, what do I need to do different? God was saying, what needs to be different is in you. Not anything out there, but what's in you. The spirit-led life that God has called us into is one that is about seeking and serving and glorifying God. And that's why he tells us to be a servant is what it's all about. That's what it's all about. We've got to live for the glory of God in every way. It's not about recognition. Stuff will come and go. The same people that were cheering Jesus when he came into Jerusalem on the day of the, the Passover, I mean of the uh, Palm Sunday, what we call, are the same voices that were yelling out to be crucified the next week. If we're not living for the glory of God in every area of our life, we're in trouble, church. We are. And we can't think that we can go over here and gossip about God's people, for goodness sake, or not God's people either way, but I'm saying it even happens in the church about other church people, and that God's okay with it, and that he doesn't know? Come on. The reason I'm not on Facebook is because I don't want to see what you're saying. I want to love you. I mean, that is a painful place. If you go in there with the eyes of Jesus, you'll be sick. Come on, church. We're supposed to be light. We're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be edifying and glorifying God in what we do. All right, here's your action steps. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know him, church? Yes. What area of your life is needing exposure to the light? Like, you know, do you have any shades pulled? Do you think you're having some private conversations or something? Is there anything God would ask you for that you would say no to? I'm all in. Really? What if God asked you for? Put whatever you want there. If there's anything in your life you'd say no about, that's where you need to start. Are you giving as God has asked you to give in your time, talent, resources? I mean, are you truly all in? Right here. God knows. God knows. If we're all in or not, doesn't matter what I say or if we say yes to anything, it's what God knows. Would those around you see the servant heart of Christ in how you live? Would they see that in you? Do people see Jesus in you? As a spirit-led believer, we are to be like Christ in this world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. How did he come in? He was the light of the world. Now the light is within us. And that light is to be seen, and that's what he tells us in that word. It is seen, and it is an exposing light. Therefore, nothing can be hidden. You can't hide stuff because it's going to be seen, especially in the light. And in the beginning, when John was telling us that the light came into the world, he said the people liked darkness because their deeds were evil, right? That's what John was teaching us. 
That's what he's saying. We try and avoid the light because it's easier to not be who I'm supposed to be in the darkness than when I stand there in broad daylight and everybody can see who I am. And so as a spirit-led believer, I'm always in the light. Always. And people see me for who I am. That's us. Us. We're seen. And we're known. God knows this church. Are we ready? I want you to stand with me. We have an altar call time. And what we call an altar call is this area up at the front of the church where you can come and talk to God. You don't have to come up here to talk to God. He's right there where you are. I know that. But there's something about making a statement and a stepping out. It's kind of like a vulnerability and exposure of myself when I come to the altar. It's like, here I am, God. I need your help. I'm here. So we invite you to come forward. You can stand. You don't have to kneel if you can't, whatever. The point is you're coming to God, not to the church, not to Pastor Dave. We're coming to God. He's already laid his fingers on you. His Holy Spirit has called you because he's talking to us about something in our life. God is. This amazing God is calling to us. We need to respond to him. Would you, church? Thank you for all of you that are here. Those of you that are still coming, God bless you. He loves you. He wants to call you into the light so that you can experience the fullness of the Spirit-led life. That's what it's all about. It's where you can lay your head down in the pillow at night and be at rest. It's all real. It's all there. I'm all in. Nothing hidden. Nothing held back. God, I'm all yours. Father, as we are here in your presence, and thank you for your word, thank you for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that just stabs into our heart and just makes us uncomfortable with who we are so that we can be changed. Change us, O oh God, as only you can. For your glory and for your kingdom and for your purpose sake, we pray these things, God. Let it be done in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're at the altar, do you not have to run away. You just, when your heart's right and you're good, you can, you can get up. He loves you. Those of you there, these three sections, remember, we want to stack those chairs if you would. And we're just going to slide them over to the side. Don't have to organize them. Just move them out of the way. we got to put some tables in here. God bless you and thank you.